Welcome to the podcast of Grace Crossing Church, the life and faith intersect. Join us for this Sunday's service as we look into the scriptures seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to 2013 here at Grace Crossing Church. We are just delighted to have all of you and want to begin this year with some good news. How many of you like good news? We've got two good things that have begun already in 2013 we want to tell you about. Uh, some of you are aware, if you were at our vision night in November, that we are expanding. Uh, we uh, put a proposal into the city to get permitting to be able to expand our parking lot and add about 65 uh, more parking spaces, which uh, would be a good thing looking around here today. And uh, the other thing we want to do is we want to add a family life uh, building, a facility, an expansion to our space. And so we decided to go to the city and get approval for both of those items, uh, even though we're only going to move forward here in 2013 with the parking lot expansion. And uh, Thursday night on January the 2nd at the city meeting, uh, our project was approved 5-0, to zero, and that's good news. So let's give God thanks for that. The, the second thing I want to tell you that's good news that some of you, again, if you were at Vision Night, heard about this. Uh, some of you may not be aware of this, but we've, we uh, have had a new staff member join our team, uh, effective this first of uh, 2013. His first day in the office with us was uh, on Thursday, and he's here today back at our children's area. He's our new family life director. His name's Josh Bertram. Uh, Josh will be overseeing all of our children and youth ministries and everything that kind of touches our families. And uh, his wife, Ashley, is actually still serving as a children's pastor in Columbus. She'll be finishing up there on January the 20th, and then she'll be joining him here. And uh, once they're both here together, we're going to have them come in, and we're going to introduce them to our church family, give you a chance to get better acquainted with them. But if you're here and you have a family, you have children this morning, as you go back to the children's area, if you see the guy in the beard, uh, probably looks a little bit out of place, that's Josh Bertram. Say hi to him and uh, introduce yourself to him. It'd be great to get acquainted with him. Well, this morning we're beginning a brand new series. We actually have done this series for the past few years called God at the Box Office. It's uh, been an annual first of the year series that we do where we kind of reach into culture and we look back at modern day culture and we, we try to find God in the middle of culture. I think we got good precedence for this, by the way, in the scripture. Uh, you've got Jesus who does that so masterfully in the Gospels. And then you've got uh, Paul and the early church leaders who, as they began to go in, in throughout Asia Minor and spread the good news of Jesus Christ, they, they didn't go into culture and condemn it. Rather, they went in and found transferable ways that they could take the things that they saw and apply them to where God was and help open their minds and their hearts to the Lord. Let me just read a a passage to you in Acts where I think we see this portrayed. While Paul was in Athens, he was troubled because he saw the city that was full of idols. Paul stood and said, people of Athens, I can see that you are very religious in all things. Notice he affirms uh, the fact that they were religious, even though their city was full of idols. He goes on to say this. As I was going through your city, I saw the objects of your worship. I found an altar that had these words written on it to an unknown God. You worship a God that you don't know. And this is the God that I'm telling you about. The God who made the whole world and everything in it is the Lord of the land and the sky. He does not live in temples built with human hands. This God is the one who gives life, breath, and everything else to people. He does not need any help from them. He has everything that he needs. God began by making one person 
And from him came all different people who live everywhere in the world. God decided exactly when and where they must live. God wanted them to look for him and perhaps search all around for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. By his power we live and move and exist. Some of your own poets have said, for we are his children. Since we are God's children, you must not think God is like something that people imagine or make from gold, silver, or rock. Let me just stop there. Everywhere else Paul preaches, Paul talks about the Jewish prophets. But when he comes to Athens, to a city that is filled with all sorts of idolatry, that has religion, but they're confused about God, they're confused about who God is. Listen, all of us have this innate sense of wanting to worship something. We have been created by God to worship. It's not a matter of if we will worship, it's a matter of what we will worship and who we will worship. And Paul knew that. But you notice that when he comes to Athens, Paul doesn't talk about Abraham. He doesn't talk about Isaac. He doesn't talk about the patriarchs of the Old Testament. He doesn't talk about the prophets. He talks about their poets. And he reaches into their culture and he says, let me help you find God in the middle of modern day culture. That's what we're doing in this series. We're going to use a number of um, box office hits over these next few weeks. And we're going to talk about some transferable principles of where we can find God in the midst of that. The very first one we're going to talk about today uh, is the Hunger Games. How many of you, by a show of hands, have either read the book or seen the movie or both? All right, good. The majority of our crowd here this morning has. But for those who haven't, let me give you the cliff notes on this. The Hunger Games is a a movie that is based on a 2008 novel uh, that was written by Suzanne Collins. Collins writes the book in the voice of a 16-year-old young lady by the name of Katniss Everdeen, who is actually living in uh, post-apocalyptic area and nation that's called Panem, which actually used to be where North America existed. Now, the capital of Panem is an extensive uh, metropolitan area that is filled with all sorts of luxuries, and everything is at their disposal. But around uh, the capital of Panem is 12 districts. These 12 districts are primarily filled with people that are impoverished, that are struggling to make ends meet, that have to hunt to find food. And annually, they have a game they call the Hunger Games, where they select two individuals, a male and a female, from each of those districts that come together in an epic battle that is then televised. Now, what I found interesting about the movie, and we could take this a lot of directions today, but here's the direction I want to take it. What I found interesting was the desire that they had to survive trump their desire for food. Many of us in this auditorium today are never going to know what it's like to go without food. Look around. We've got plenty to eat, right? We're never going to struggle for our next meal. Most of us here don't even have a clue of what it means to hunger in a physical way because of food. But if you are really hungry and you are really thirsty, you will do just about anything to satisfy those particular appetites. And that's what we want to talk about today. And perhaps that's why Jesus said this 
in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This verse, by the way, has a transferable implication. You can take the word righteousness out of there and put just about anything else that you want to put in there. And here's the reality. Though your life may not be blessed, if you hunger and thirst for anything, you will ultimately become satisfied and you will do everything you can to satisfy that particular hunger. This morning I want to talk about managing our appetites and the importance for us to manage our appetites. Now, when we think of the word appetite, we often think about food. But there are some appetites that are much more pronounced and much more powerful than our appetite for food. Appetites like an appetite for success or wealth or respect. Our appetite for affection, attention, love, and even sex. Our appetite for power. Our appetite for control, for dominance. These are real appetites that every one of us in this auditorium deal with at some level in our lives. And here's the reality today. Each one of us are products today of how we handled our appetites yesterday. The way we manage and the way we deal with our appetites defines the person that we are And watch this. The person that we will become tomorrow is in direct proportion in relation to how we manage our appetites today. You see, we, all of us are dealing in our lives with these God-given appetites. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But our appetites and the way we manage them or mismanage them can have a large bearing on the person we become. And some of us here today... Uh, are living with some real issues that we're dealing with that are coming because we didn't do a good job at managing our appetites. But on the other hand, some of us are here or suffering today because somebody else in your world and your life didn't do a good job of managing their appetites. Some of you here today have been neglected or you've been abandoned by a parent or you've been abandoned by a spouse Because they did not know how to manage their appetite for alcohol or their appetite for gambling or their their appetite for sex. And because of that, they ended up abandoning you and you've paid the price for it. We have appetites that we've got to deal with. And there's some things that, that I want you to know on the front end of this talk about appetites that are really, really critical for us to know today. The first one is this. God created them. Sin distorted them. There is not one of the appetites that I've just mentioned that is inherently evil or sinful or bad. But they're broken. They're broken by sin. They have become flawed. And so, so what happened? God created these appetites. He put them inside of us. But then sin comes along and distorts them. That's actually what Genesis, and all you have to do is rewind all the way back to the beginning. And see where this began. Let's read it together. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but 
but God did say you must not eat from that tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will surely not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. I don't believe that Eve ever even had an appetite for the fruit that was on that tree. She had everything that you could ever imagine that was at her disposal. Everything that God could bless a person with, she had. Including this real-time relationship with God. And all of a sudden, the enemy comes along and the enemy distorts her appetite and says, there's something you're missing out on. There's something you don't have that because you don't have it, you're not a whole person. You're not complete. And for you to become complete, you have got to have that thing. That's how our appetite works. Our appetite is all about control and rulership because if we don't control our appetites, what will happen? Our appetites will control us. God created them. But sin distorted them. So the second thing you need to know about appetites. Appetites always whisper now and never whisper later. There's only one word in, in, in our appetites vocabulary. You know what that word is? More. And there's only one spot on the clock when it comes to our appetites. And that spot is now. Our appetites are all about being satisfied in the here and now. And here's what happens because of distorted appetites. We tend to become convinced that we've got to have the immediate over the ultimate. That we've got to have what is the pleasure today because we're not sure we can get it tomorrow. And that's a danger. And I think it is a subtle deception of the enemy to get us responding to the immediate appetite because we feel like we've got to have it here and we've got to have it now. Another thing about appetites we've got to understand, and this is perhaps one of the most important parts, is appetites can never be permanently satisfied. Now, we know that's true about food, because when we finish eating, it doesn't take us very long to start getting hungry again, does it? But we don't think about that with other appetites. We think that if somehow we respond to whatever that impulse is, that it'll satisfy us, and we won't need it anymore. And therein is the lie. The lie of this something or this someone can somehow permanently satisfy my deepest longings, my deepest hunger. The reality is it can't. Proverbs says this. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 20. Death and destruction are never satisfied. And neither are human eyes. Which means as we look at life and we look at the appetites that we deal with in life and those impulses that we face, listen, our eyes will never be satisfied that we've ever had enough. We'll always want just a little bit more. And that's why I believe this. You and I can never satisfy sin by feeding it. All you do is you increase its capacity. 
It grows. becomes larger. But there is some good news. And here's the good news. Appetites can be managed. They can be controlled. They, they can be conditioned. They can be changed. The market today is flooded with appetite suppressants to help us with our dietary needs. Don't you wish that there was a suppressant for every appetite we face in life? Wouldn't it be a nice thing if there was a suppressant for an appetite for power? Or, or an appetite for success? Or an appetite for wealth or sex? Wouldn't it be nice if there was something you could take and it would just help you deal with that appetite? Reality is, we don't have that. What we do have, however, is God's help. We do have God who comes and makes himself available. You know, my appetites today is nothing like my appetite was when I was younger. Appetites change over time. When I was a kid, I hated vegetables. I was one of those kids that you had to say, you stay at the table till you eat your lima beans. I hated lima beans. Love them today. I hated asparagus. Love asparagus. I hated Brussels sprouts. Still hate Brussels sprouts, okay? There are some things I've just never gotten an appetite for. Now, when I was a kid, I've told my wife this. There was the trifecta of cereals that I loved. I've lost my taste for cereal. I don't eat it a lot anymore. But I used to love cereal. And the trifecta of cereal was Count Chocula, Frankenberry, and what was the other one? Some of you remember it. My wife gave me one of the greatest gifts at Christmas. I haven't had a box of booberry in my house. I know we shouldn't eat this. I know that. But I haven't had a box of this in my house in years and years. And I couldn't wait because I remembered what it tasted like when I was a kid. I got through one bowl of it. Since it's the second service, I can give it away. Anybody here whose kids love booberry? That just love booberry? Come on, I'm going to give you a free gift today. An open box of booberry. Does it get any better than that? It's there for the taking. Reality is our appetites do change. And we can just go ahead and let them change over time naturally. Or we can, with God's help, change our appetites. You see, it's one of the most dangerous things that we, that we deal with. Our, our appetites and people's appetites have shipwrecked more people than anything else has. If I could stand here today and I could tell you story after story, I would of people who were leaders that actually became disqualified from their place of authority, their place of position, their place of influence. Parents who became disqualified. Spouses who became disqualified. Why? Because they couldn't manage their appetite. We'll spend our whole lives trying to manage it. And fighting with the futility of trying to management. And that's the reason that there's an entire book dedicated to this. It's the book of Ecclesiastes. This book, this verse kind of summarizes it all. Ecclesiastes 6-7. We work to feed our appetites. Meanwhile, our souls go hungry. Mother Teresa, I think, made a profound statement when she said this. She said, people in India are physically hungry. People in America are spiritually hungry. That makes people in India better off because Americans don't realize why they're starving. I think that's profound. 
I think when it comes to managing our appetites, we've got to understand this issue is first and foremost a spiritual issue. And if we don't look at it and deal with it as a spiritual issue, we're never going to be able to get victory over the appetites that we struggle with. And there's a story I want to take us to to illustrate this that's found in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis. It's actually the story of two brothers, Esau and Jacob, who were fraternal twins. Other than their bloodline and some DNA that they shared, they are like most siblings. They had nothing in common. Esau was a man's man. He was a hunter. He was an outdoorsman. He loved to go fishing. He loved to go hunting. Jacob, on the other hand, was a mama's boy. He liked to stay home. That's what the Bible says. Let's read the story and look what happens in Genesis chapter 25, verses 27 through 31. Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I am famished. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Now, when we read a story like this at first earshot, this doesn't make a lot of sense to us and we don't understand the significance of what's happening here. In today's world, when you do estate planning, typically, if you're in a healthy relationship, everything that belongs to you is then given to your beneficiary, which typically is your spouse. That was not the case in ancient Israel. In ancient Israel, everything that belonged to the father was entrusted at his death to his oldest Firstborn son, living son. That meant that even though mom was still in the scene, it would have been Esau who would have received the inheritance. He would have gotten his father's wealth, his property, all of his authority, and his position. He would have had everything that he could have ever wanted in his future. And here's what the Bible says happens. Jacob says to him, sell me your birthright. Jacob knew what we didn't know. That there were three things that came with the birthright that were significant. One, you got a a spiritual, verbal blessing spoken over your life by your father. May not mean a lot to us today. It was a huge deal. And believe me, it's still a huge deal today. When I hold my grandson who's almost six, six months old, I speak blessing over his life. Because we have that power, that authority through Jesus Christ to do that, to impart blessing. And listen, that's exactly what happened with the birthright. The father would speak it. If you fast forward into the 27th chapter of Genesis, what you will find is Jacob gets the blessing. And when Esau comes to ask Isaac for it, he doesn't get it because it can only be given once. It also meant you got a double portion of the inheritance. Everybody in the family got something. But the firstborn, the birthright son, got a double portion. And the other thing that happened with the birthright is you got the privilege of being the judge and the authority over not just your immediate family, but over the extended family. You became really the executor 
of the entire state, but not just property. Authority. Now, when we think of that and we understand that context, we say to ourselves, who in their right mind would exchange their birthright for a bowl of stew? I've had some good soup in my time. Believe me, I love lobster bisque. I mean, if it's good, there's nothing like it in the world. I've had some incredible butternut squash this past week soup. It was, it was tremendous. But trade that for your birthright? Who in their right mind would do that? And that's the point. Esau, because of his appetite, is actually not even in his right mind. Let's go to the next verse and look at what it says. Verse 32. Esau said, I'm about to die. What good is the birthright to me? When our appetites become exaggerated, there is a phenomenon that takes place within the human brain. We're hardwired this way. And the phenomenon that begins to take place in the human brain is what psychologists call effective forecasting. What happens is you begin to mentally simulate what's going to happen if you do not satisfy that appetite Or if you do satisfy that appetite. And effective forecasting simply says this. If I do this and I satisfy this appetite, what is the perceived pleasure and happiness I'm going to get from this? And if I don't, in his case, what is he saying? His effective forecasting is telling him this. Life's going to be horrible. I'm not even going to live to see my birthright. So what good is my birthright? He's actually blurring everything about his future on the basis of the immediate. And that's what he does. He squanders it. He gives it away. You say, now how does this work? Let me give you an illustration. Are you ready? I want you to clear your mind. I'm going to give you two possible life scenarios. And I want you to mentally simulate Which of these scenarios is going to bring you the most happiness? Are you ready? The first one is that you are the lucky winner of the Publishers Clearinghouse sweepstakes that's coming in February where you're going to get $5,000 a week for the rest of your life. And then you can give that $5,000 once you die to somebody else for the rest of their life. So first scenario is that is your future. Or here's the second scenario. You become a paraplegic. I'll give you a few minutes to think about this. A few minutes to work this out here. You don't need any time. Why? Because mentally you've already simulated which one's going to make you the most happy. Which one is going to bring you the greatest pleasure. But watch this. Field studies and clinical studies have proven, and there's data on this, that people who win the lottery and a person who becomes a paraplegic a year later are no more or less happy. And even recent studies have proven that a major life trauma, just a few months removed, does not make a person's life less happy than it was before that life trauma. I can tell you from experience, that's true. You learn to deal with those things, but our brain doesn't tell us that in the moment of our appetite. What it tells us is we need the immediate over the ultimate. And so look at what happens. Verse number 33, Esau swore to an oath, swore an oath to him saying, 
selling his birthright to Jacob. I wish I could step into the story. I wish I could tell Esau what he's about to squander. I wish I could tell him that he has been given a a blessing and a birthright from his father that is going to mean he's going to have 12 sons and each of those sons are going to have sons and daughters and sons and daughters and so on and so forth and they're going to become a mighty nation. They're going to spend 400 years in bondage in Egypt but eventually they're going to send, there's a guy coming to them by the name of Moses who didn't know God, who God shows up to and when he looks to God and says, who am I supposed to tell them sent me to deliver the Israelites? What is he supposed to say? Tell them that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. That's exactly what would have happened had he not sold his birthright. But because he sold his birthright, when you read the rest of the New Testament, here's what you read. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob got what was intended for Esau. Now listen. There is a spiritual birthright that's given to every one of us. It's given to us in Christ. You want to know what those privileges are? Just read Ephesians chapter 1. Just read about how many wonderful things are yours because of your relationship with Christ. The moment that we lay down our appetite and we squander it for the immediate pleasure, we miss out on what God intended for us. And the Bible, the end of the story is so sad. Esau despised his birthright. He didn't just despise the birthright, he despised everything about it. And you know, this is so true, isn't it? Think of your own life. When you give in to your appetite for some type of pleasure that you know isn't in your best interest, what do you feel immediately? Hatred, anger, and disgust. Why did I do that? Why did I give in to that? That's what Esau was feeling. He despised it. What a tragic end of a story of a person who had so much potential but wasted it all. He lived with that conflict the rest of his his life here on earth. Now, this is such a huge deal that I want to close by giving you a couple of tools that will help you with managing your appetite. I think we all need them. We all in this auditorium deal with our appetite and struggle with appetite in different areas. Some of us, it is our food. Some of it is... It is power. Some of it is success or wealth. Some, some of us, it's more of the relational or the romantic. We struggle, and we need God's help. So let me give you a couple, of, a couple of important takeaways today on what we can do to manage. Number one, be honest with yourself. I think the very first thing that we've got to do is we've got to be honest with our appetites. Where do we struggle? What are the things that we deal with in our life most of all? In other words, let me say it this way. What's your bowl of stew? What is it that you will trade who God has made you to be and who God has called you to be and your potential in Christ? What is it that you will trade for that? Maybe it's a secret. Maybe it's a habit. But what is it that you will lay down your birthright, your privileges in Christ? Be honest. The second thing I think is important is you've got to think ultimate instead of immediate. Think ultimate instead of immediate. Think about what your future is going to look like if you take the bowl of stew over the birthright. 
Think about what life is going to feel like for you down the road if you continue to satisfy that appetite in an unhealthy and ungodly way. And let me give you a, a tool to help you with this. Take your program or a piece of paper or whatever mobile device you're using or your tablet. And I want you just to write down this one simple statement. Here it is. Just one simple statement. In five years, my life will be. Here it is again. In five years, my life will be. Now I want you to pick that up and I want you to think about that and begin to fill it in. What is it you want your life to look like in five years from now? In fact, this would be a good exercise for you to do throughout 2013. What is it you want 2018 to look like? Now watch what I'm about to say. Every time your appetite drives you to something that you know is not, is not honorable to God, ask yourself this question. Is this worth that? Is this bowl of stew worth that? What I want to be in five years. And I think what you're going to find is it isn't. One final thing. Hunger pains can only be satisfied in one source. And that source is God. Throughout the Bible, we're given this beautiful picture that God is the one who comes along and he satisfies our lives, our appetites, with good things. In John, in John's Gospel, we've got all kinds of different pictures of who Jesus is. But one of the great titles that we have of Jesus in the New Testament is he's the bread of life. He's the bread that feeds us. In John chapter 6, verse 27, Jesus said, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. 1 Peter chapter 2, Like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk, so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment. Cry out for this nourishment. Now that you have had a taste of the Lord's kindness. I think what that's telling us is this. There is so much more that we can experience of God that we've yet to taste. We've only scratched the surface on what God wants to do in our hearts, both individually and collectively at Grace Crossing Church. And so we've got to crave a deeper longing and a deeper relationship with God. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 55. Why spend your money on food that does not give you strength? Why pay for food that does you no good? Listen to me and you will eat what is good. You will enjoy the finest food. And then finally, Psalm 107 verse 9. He satisfies the thirsty and he fills the hungry with good things. These are promises that God has given us. That though we struggle with our appetites, the reality is this. God is the one who can help us and help satisfy the deepest hunger pains for whatever that appetite is. And when you keep those appetites in the boundaries that God has given us in his word, man, there's so much more joy, so much more satisfaction than when we just let those appetites control us. When it comes to our appetites, we will either rule them or they will rule us. And we need God's help to manage them well. I want you to bow your heads this morning and I'm going to pray and 
Our team's going to get ready, and we're going to serve communion this morning. We always do communion as we feel that it will support what we're trying to share and what we believe God's kind of word is for us. And I think this is an important moment for us today as we come to the Lord's table. So let me pray, and then I want to read one verse, and we're going to distribute the elements. Father, I ask you this morning that as we come to your table, we come to a place that is filled with life, that's filled with forgiveness, a table that is filled with grace and filled with love. And yet you've told us in your word that there are some table manners. There are some things that we should do and must do when we come. We should come with repentant hearts. We should come broken before you. We should come acknowledging our our weaknesses and our struggles. And we should come reaffirming our faith and our allegiance to Christ. And so this morning, God, we do that. We come to a table that you prepared for us. And you told us to continue to do it in remembrance of you. So today we do this in remembrance of you. And pray your blessing on it. One verse as, as we prepare to receive today. Luke chapter 22. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And and notice what he says. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say, I shall never again eat until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. This is called the Last Supper for a reason. It was the last physical meal that Jesus would ever partake of. The last time he would ever taste bread. The last time he would ever taste the sweet fruit of the vine. Last time. But notice what he earnestly desired. He didn't desire the food earnestly. What he desired was to be with them. He earnestly desired to share with them before he suffered. I think the greatest compliment and the greatest honor that we give to God is when we equally and earnestly desire to be with Him. He did it for His apostles. He said, continue to do this in remembrance of me because He earnestly wanted His presence to be with us. And let me ask you this morning, do you earnestly desire to share this fellowship with Christ, the fellowship of His suffering, the power of His resurrection, the things that Jesus went through so that we could have life. He invites us. And this morning, the greatest appetite suppressant that I know that's on the market today is the body and blood of Jesus. It's the greatest way that we get to manage by inviting His presence into our lives once again. Thanks for joining us today. To learn more, check out gracecrossingchurch.net. To experience Grace Crossing Church in real time, we meet on Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m. at 1153 Beaver Valley Road in Beaver Creek, Ohio. Thanks, and have a wonderful day.